So we're going to hand the mic off to Dr. Brian real quick, and he's going to begin and he's going to talk for a little bit, just kind of about the current status of the college, the circumstances, why we're all here tonight, and then we're going to open it up to questions from all of you. Okay. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thanks, Trey. Good evening. Um, I know I talked to Kaylee a couple of weeks ago um, and uh, sent out some letters to some of the students um, affected by some recent decisions, but I want to just let's start at the 30,000-foot level here. Um, first of all, there's a lot of change going on in higher education, which means we've got to try to react to it. Um, you and your colleagues of your age group and certainly students who are returning to college, uh, whether they be veterans or uh, uh, people in the workforce who are coming back to get a degree, have different kinds of needs than students have had in the past. And we've tried to meet some of those needs, and we're continuing to try to meet some of those needs uh, through investing in some new directions and some new programs, uh, while also continuing to protect the core of what most of us believe is essential to a Westminster college, and that is a relationship-based way of learning, um, not massive, mass online learning. Uh, other people do that, um, and they do it to different degrees of, of uh, excellence, I guess you might say. Um, and we're doing some of that as well. Uh, I don't know how many of you have taken an online course from Westminster faculty member. Uh, I'd say, I, I, you know, it's surprising how many students even take. And online is just a piece of this um, because the, a lot of the online things we're doing are these project-based programs that do involve um, mentoring and uh, coaching as a part of the program, either by uh, the faculty who are teaching them or um, many of our staff actually serve as, as mentors in those programs. Uh, but we tried to build adapting to this change into our strategic plan, and there's three pieces to it. One is building community at Westminster and then extending that community out into, uh, into our region um, and the world the sort of global and local. And um, I think a good example of how we're doing that is, is are, are some of the things that go on in Sugar House, uh, the internships that have been started in, uh, in small businesses in Sugar House. And certainly, uh, for me, the most meaningful has been the relationship with South Salt Lake um, and, and the many people that are involved in that um, in various ways, everything from courses being centered around South Salt Lake to volunteer work in the writing center or after-school programs, the PAL Boxing Center, and, and all those sorts of things. Um, the second focus of our strategic plan is innovation, and we've, we've focused on innovation. We used to call it uh, teaching, to, uh, teaching to learning, moving away from what I'm doing right now, sort of lecturing, and more to um, discussion, active learning in the classroom. Um, and many of our faculty have adopted that over, oh, over the last 15 years or so, uh, as it has been adopted at many other institutions as well. Uh, it's also innovation in terms of the kinds of programs we, uh, we offer. Um, if you're involved in the quantitative uh, group on campus, they do a number of things across disciplines that are related to quantitative uh, knowledge. Uh, the third is sustainability and affordability, and we put them together. The sustainability is the sustainability of this institution as a viable institution. The affordability is how can we become uh, more accessible for a broader range of uh, ra for students from a broader range of income backgrounds. 
um, because the population of high school graduates who can these days afford to pay tuition at private higher education has been shrinking. Uh, just as the middle class has shrunk and as the distribution of income has gotten polarized in this country uh, so that uh, people in the middle, like when I grew up, uh, and who's, my father worked in a factory and my mom worked part-time in a bank in our neighborhood, uh, could afford to send their kid, their kid to a private school. I don't think there are many factory wages these days outside of some high-tech areas that, uh, that make that possible. Uh, so it's important we focus on affordability, um, and a lot of that comes through through controlling our costs so that we don't have to keep raising tuition uh, at exorbitant levels. Uh, the, the other part is sustainability, and I'm not talking about necessarily air and water and, and uh, uh, climate change and things like that. I'm talking about the sustainability of the economics of this institution, and that's been a real challenge the past few years because we are about 95% dependent on tuition dollars. Uh, we have a $72 million endowment, uh, but most of that, 90-some percent of that, is targeted at specific purposes. Uh, so we have scholarship dollars in there, and those go to you students who qualify for those particular scholarships. Uh, we have some building endowment money. So when we built the Meldrum Science Center, uh, part of that building, raising money for that building, was to raise money for an endowment, and that builds a reserve so that when the roof needs to be replaced, we have the money to replace the roof. When we need new equipment, we have money for some equipment. Uh, same thing with Giovanni Library, the Gore Building, um, Health and Wellness Center, and the uh, E. Jones and the Conservatory. All have building endowments uh, for them. Uh, but by and large, that $72 million sits there, and we can't just sort of say, well, I need $20 this week. I'll take it out of the $72 million. It's frankly illegal to do that. Uh, so it's an asset, uh, and it continues to build, um, and we can, use, we can use that for scholarship dollars. We can use it in the way the donors uh, gave us the money. Um, and a very small portion of that is called unrestricted dollars, and those we can use for anything. Uh, so it would be, I don't have a good analogy, um, uh, but those unrestricted dollars we can use for operating expenses, and we do, uh, roughly a million dollars a year that is raised uh, from alumni, from donors, uh, who say, use this any way you want. Um, we've had, uh, trying to think, well, I'll talk about one in a minute. Um, so while it sounds like there's a lot of money in an endowment, and there is, you know, places like um, Bowdoin, Williams, Amherst, um, Colorado College have hundreds of millions of dollars in their endowment by comparison. So we have a very, very modest endowment by comparison with uh, many of our academic peers. Um, and so we rely on tuition dollars, uh, but tuition dollars aren't exactly the number of students here times the sticker price of tuition, because most students don't pay the sticker price of tuition. Most students have either federal financial aid uh, or get institutional financial aid. Something like 96% of our students uh, get that financial aid. So um, we're not bringing in the number of, so if we have 1,000 students times $30,000 tuition, it doesn't mean we have 
uh, $3 million. $3 million, $30 million. Who's a mathematician? Anyways, um, it, we're bringing in roughly about, roughly about half of that because that's how many scholarships we give out. And um, so that means we have a budget that's based almost entirely on uh, uh, tuition dollars, less all the scholarships we give out. And that's directly affected by the level of enrollment at the college. And it's, it's disproportionately affected when a high tuition program like the MBA program, or many schools that have law schools these days, uh, have seen their law school enrollment cut in half, literally, over about a three or four year period. That has been millions of dollars they've had to absorb in, uh, in reductions. And they still have all those law school faculty, um, and they still have the building the law school is in, so there's still some fixed costs. Um, our MBA program, like many MBA programs, even at the U and other schools around here, has taken a, a significant hit in enrollment over the past past five years or so. Um, and that's been hard to absorb. Uh, we've also had, uh, we had very large classes come in in 2010, that graduated this year, 2011, and 2009. So it got bigger, bigger, bigger. And those students are graduating and graduated last year, and the biggest graduating class we have will be this year. Uh, after that, the size of the senior class drops down, and uh, it's it's more of a normal sort of level of uh, of enrollment. At the same time, we have not brought in the same number of students over those over those years uh, to match the outgoing numbers. So the total enrollment has gone down, um, and people are finding themselves more stretched financially. So the need for our institutional aid has gone up, and all of that has resulted. Over the past, well, the, I came in in 2012, and in 2012, we already had an expectation of revenue that we did not meet by, I think it was by about $750,000 that year. So we were able to go to uh, faculty and staff and our colleagues and say, save where you can. We, can. we can save up that much out of operating, cancel a trip, don't go to a conference, um, don't buy those supplies in this year's budget, buy them in next year's budget. Um, and uh, we then had the second year where that difference went up to about $1.3 million. And now in this next year, it's, it's going to be about 1.5. And this is cumulative. So you're looking at a total of, uh, I don't know, it's a total of about $4.5, $5 million. Um, these are annual fluctuations. This has nothing to do, some of you are being told, I believe, that the college is in dire straits financially. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're sitting here with a $72 million budget. We have an annual budget of about $66 million. It'll be about it's 64 this year. It'll be 66 next year. So that the size of the budget goes up. But so do our costs. Um, over, a, over the last 10 years, um, the employees here, uh, contrary to many other places, employees here have gotten uh, raises all except last year. There were no furloughs as there were at other schools. So we've absorbed uh, roughly $5 million in reductions over time by 
cutting a little here, cutting a little there, cutting a little here. And after a period of time, that begins, that begins to wear thin because now we don't have money to do this, we don't have money to do that, and it's year after year after year. So uh, this year, instead of going through a budget process where everybody brings in a wish list and you say, we, don't, we have no money, um, we can't give you any of your wish list, we, and, and rather than rely on you know, Annalisa's department having having a, a vacancy or the financial aid office having a vacancy um, and it being unplanned and have a significantly uh, negative effect on people, uh, we decided to go through a process of identifying positions strategically and worked with the deans, the uh, university cabinet. Uh, I believe that Kaylee was there. And... Um, and went through a process of identifying, first of all, vacant positions that many of them hadn't been filled for a couple of years, and we were living without them. And so we thought, okay, we can probably continue to live without that position. And then we still didn't have enough to meet next year's operating budget. Uh, now, beneath all this, we have one indicator is your bond rating. And our bond rating has not changed throughout this entire period. I'd say about 30% of private institutions have had their bond rating reduced over the last five years by Standard & Poor's. Um, and they come in and they look very carefully at our budget. And they said, okay, you guys are managing a downturn in enrollment. It's, uh, uh, you know, enrollment goes up, enrollment goes down. It comes in waves. Uh, so you're managing through this process, so we're not going to change your bond rating. Uh, and if we don't manage through it, then our bond rating gets dropped. And then and then people have the sense that, well, this is not a good investment if, if we go out into the bond market uh, to put up a building or make renovations or something like that. Um, so we went through a process of getting input uh, from people who manage the budgets at the college. Um, we anticipate enrollment next year will be down about 1%, and we built our budget around that. I anticipate the year after that our enrollment will be up multiple percentage points because I can just look at the graduating class, and even if we stay level at the number of students who are coming in, assuming the LDS Church doesn't again change the mission age or something like that on us, um, or some other, uh, you know, somebody starts up a new school that charges $2 a credit hour or something like that, um, I'm anticipating our enrollment will start to grow back uh, in the other direction beginning hopefully next year by the second semester, but certainly by the fall of 2016. And what, what I've done with the budget this year is say rather than be in a position where, oh, I can draw something, I guess. So our enrollment went sort of like this over the years. And for those on a podcast, I'm drawing on the board here. And our budget sort of went like this and didn't drop off. Um, and then our revenues were somewhere in between here. And that gap is starting. This gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger each of the last four years. And if we didn't change this side of it, the expectation of what we have to spend next year, this bottom side, this gap would get even bigger. And then how are you going to find all that money once the budget year starts? It's like, it's like I gave you your allowance for the week on Sunday, 
And on Wednesday, I said, well, I gave you too much money. I can't really afford to give you $10 this week. Give me three back. And you say, but I've already spent it. Um, and uh, it's, it's hard to make up that difference midway through the year. So, uh, so we've done kind of a rebasing of the budget. And the only way to get there, 80-some uh, percent of our budget is, is salaries and benefits. This is like the movie industry. We are very, very labor-dependent in higher education. That's why it's, especially at a school that's people to people. Phoenix University, just uh, can a few more courses and have a few more uh, people sort of moonlighting and teaching them. Uh, that's a different story. The margins are different. Uh, and the input we got was, I don't know, we had a 200 and some proposals uh, at our first meeting of the cabinet, and Kaylee was at that, it became very apparent that uh, uh, at that point we were beginning to talk about uh, positions and things that it was easy to identify an individual, and we decided that's those are personnel dis uh, discussions that can't go on in a broad in a broad uh, sort of forum. So uh, we brought that back into the cabinet, the executive team, and the deans. And in the end, I had to make decisions on that. So, um, so with that, um, you know, but I want to make sure you understand this is, uh, uh, I've heard all sorts of, of fantasies and fantastic rumors um, about the condition of the school. Condition of the school is fine. We have strong donors. We have, uh, I think, the last two years have been among our best years of fundraising from donors. Uh, we had our highest percentage of alumni giving two years ago, in fact, a higher percentage than, any, than uh, anybody in the state, including BYU, although I don't know if they can count tithing or not, but, um, but uh, all good signs. And, uh, and uh, right now we have very strong interest in the freshman class next year. Uh, which uh, gives me a great deal of hope. I think we have uh, two years ago when they did change the missionary age, we lost a number of students, and those students would be coming back to school now uh, this year, two years later. And uh, we're beginning to see many of those students. And, um, and we've got some new programs that are attracting uh, non-traditional students that are reaching out and working with specific companies like Discover Card um, and a few others here. We're working, trying to work with Overstock. And these are people who are working full-time but will be going into our Bachelor of Business Administration or our MBA program. And that's going to help the college uh, financially as well as building new enrollments in the future. So with that, I'll stop, I guess. Okay. I think those are kind of the yeah. main things Kaylee wanted me to touch on. All right, I don't mean to cut you off or anything. And also, just to clarify, the reason that Kaylee isn't here tonight is because she's feeling very much under the weather. I think she has the flu, so she regrets that she can't be here. And she has been uh, vocal throughout this process and involved, and so just I'm very grateful that she has been such an involved student throughout this process. Um, I was just wondering, how do we know whether or not our own academic program is in jeopardy of getting cut? Um, we cut everything we're going to cut. I mean, in the next four years. Oh, um, tell everybody in your hometown to come to Westminster. <laughs> um, no, it, it's, we've not cut any academic programs. Um, we cut individuals. 
who are in academic programs and we've proposed to the Senate. So two areas that were affected were ePortfolio and uh, Westminster Scholars. And I met with the Faculty Senate uh, last Friday, uh, gave them a proposal on how we can continue those programs effectively while also creating the opportunity, which we should do because they've been around for a while now, um, as we have with many other programs, the opportunity to say, is this working the way it was intended to work? Uh, is it a viable program financially in terms of the numbers of students involved? Um, is there an opportunity to highlight this program in different ways? So problem-based learning in, for the Westminster Scholars is a method that is used in a number of charter schools, uh, particularly in California, since I have some friends who have uh, been heavily involved in the charter school movement. Is there a way to use it not so much to uh, uh, serve students who might already be coming to Westminster and learn about it, but as a, as, as a program that we could go and talk to students who are in that environment right now and want to continue in college to uh, have that kind of learning environment supported? Uh, we have never looked at it from that perspective. Um, and... Uh, and there's sort of administrative pieces to it. There's academic pieces to it. I want the academic pieces to be owned by the faculty of this college. Uh, the administrative pieces we can support um, in other ways. Same thing with the e-portfolio. It's a degree requirement, and yet we've created, uh, as we have around many degree requirements, an office, personnel, budgets, um, I'll give you an example, a comparative example is an institution I worked at not long ago had a 30-hour service learning requirement of every student. You got no credit for it, but you had to do it. Um, and it had to be documented. And when they started the program, they had an office, they assigned a faculty member half-time, he became full-time, we had an assistant, space, a couple of AmeriCorps people. Um, after a few years, 85% of all the service learning was incorporated into uh, capstones, into major courses. And so we didn't need that whole structure to support it any longer. It was just built into the curriculum. So um, I think that's something we have to do with the e-portfolio. And probably have a discussion uh, going forward about, again, is it serving the purposes it was meant to serve? I think different disciplines view that differently. And I know there's a difference of opinion among the faculty on that. But they're the ones who instituted this as a degree requirement, and they're the ones that need to have that discussion. Um, so in a way, I'm kind of forcing the discussion by um, doing this. We haven't looked at any degree programs. Um, we don't have a process here like many of the public institutions that you have to have a certain number of majors graduate each year or your program gets uh, canceled. Um, I think we have to look at some metrics because, uh, frankly, when I, I taught a course um, my second year here, Trey was in it, and I looked at the syllabi of other courses that were out there that semester, and there were three other courses that were pretty closely interchangeable with that course. So we've got a lot of duplication uh, in the curriculum. Uh, the same subject taught from a very slightly different perspective. Um, and so there's, there's some... There's some pruning needs to be done. We have to have, you know, we keep adding and adding to the curriculum over and over and over. Um, 
you get a new faculty member, he, did his, he or she did a dissertation on a specific subject, well, we have to have a course in that subject now. And we can't, we can't uh, continue to grow without ever sort of stopping to do things. Um, so until we have some reliable uh, way to measure program uh, uh, productivity, for lack of a better word, uh, the viability of a program, we can't, we don't have any standards to say, well, this program doesn't meet this standard or this standard or this standard. And so it'd be very arbitrary to do that. Um, so, the, and the reason for doing this is just that, so that we come back in the fall, which is when this budget that I'm talking about takes effect, and we don't have any worries about cuts because when we come back in the fall, we should have made our budget targets, or made our enrollment targets, which makes our budget targets, which means, okay, we got our money for the year, we go through the year as we planned, as opposed to worrying about whether something's gonna get cut or a position not filled um, over time. And it's gonna require some changes. So I guess I use the analogy of, of you, got a, you got a really good business on 11th, and now, uh, because you students and Annalisa went and got the trolley coming down 11th, they're going to do construction. And we know that construction is going to affect our business. We don't keep the same number of employees if we know for a fact that our business is going to go down for a year and then grow back again. Um, on the other hand, we don't get rid of a product line that we know is going to sell and, and be viable after the, after the trolley's built and the traffic is back again at the store. So... Um, so it's a fluctuation, an annual periodic fluctuation that we're dealing with. At the same time, for about 10 years, we had rising enrollment, and um, we added and added and added and added to the, um, to the salary budget and the number of positions. I even did it my first year here. I added 10 faculty positions for 2013-14. Um, so I'll just give you my 30-second Westminster story. Uh, I came here from uh, Wyoming, and scholarships are what brought me here. Uh, I didn't live on campus, so I didn't get involved, uh, and that was a huge issue for me. Within the first month and a half, two months, I was considering transferring. Um, but my faculty advisor, Mark Rubenfeld, kind of took me under his wing and said, you know, let's start taking some classes from myself and, and from some of my colleagues, and uh, let's really focus on you and make it all about you and make sure that you were getting the Westminster experience that you expected to have. Um, I had a sociology minor at the end of my freshman year, and I've, I've been here ever since, obviously, getting involved. So as we begin to change over time, um, there's this, this feeling that there's some it's an us versus them sort of mentality between uh, the administration and those faculty. And, and people come here for the faculty. Like, I can't tell you the number of phenomenal people that have taught my classes. So can you talk a little bit about the us versus them mentality that professors have, even if you don't necessarily feel it, perception is reality? And can you talk about how you uh, plan to regain the trust of faculty members and, and talk a little bit about that schism and going back to figuring out how to work as a team. Because we're all on Team Westminster. We all want the same end goal, that this place succeeds. Um, but there's a little bit of a schism right now, so could you talk about how to repair that? Well, it's certainly been articulated by your advisor um, at faculty meetings that I've also had Q&As at. Um, I think what's happening is not this. And, and unfortunately, we only have... How many have been at other schools besides Westminster? 
Okay. So you don't have a real good comparative perspective here. Um, and uh, <laughs> we had the provost candidate in today, and uh, he was meeting with the executive team, and somebody somebody asked about some of these sorts of things that have come up this year uh, that, that the faculty have uh, been particularly exercised about. And he's from University of Redlands in California, very much a sister institution. He's had immediate answers for them because he's been dealing with the same issues there. Um, a lot of what is happening is that as a faculty member, I used to be able to just sort of focus on my discipline, focus on my students, and um, my life was pretty much on an even keel. Um, and then things changed. Um, it became harder to get academic jobs. And uh, increasingly, colleges and universities are held to much higher standards. I mean, I'm going back to when Title IX, the only thing we knew about Title IX is that your, your women athletes had to have the same size locker room as your male athletes. Title IX is a whole different ballgame right now. And, and Tricia can attest to that. I think she just stepped down. Um, uh, in terms of just, if nothing else, reporting requirements, um, the level of risk for which we're held accountable is much higher. And that's, it used to be that administrators could kind of fend that off and keep that away from the faculty, uh, just because we want to protect the faculty to do what they do best. Um, but that, that has now intruded into the lives of individual faculty members. And I think it's a really hard adjustment to make when that happens. Um, I, you know, if anybody doesn't have the trust of a group, uh, then they need to work at that. Um, if, on the other hand, uh, I tend to trust people before they disprove my trust in them. Uh, if, on the other hand, you begin by classifying someone and say, I distrust them because they have this title in their job, well, I don't, there's not much I can do about that. Uh, all I can do is say what I'm going to do and then do it. And I think I've done that repeatedly in my career elsewhere as well as here. And uh, I'll keep doing that until people say, yeah, I guess he said he was going to do that, and now he did it. Um, with these, these budget reductions, we were very upfront. We said, you know, if, if, uh, if we're going to have the same sort of level of faculty complement, there'll be fewer other people. Um, and then when I, when I did that, uh, then uh, people reacted differently than, than uh, perhaps they thought they would. But um, uh, so I, you know, I go before the faculty meetings every time they have a meeting. We've had probably hour and a half sessions like this at each of the last faculty meetings um, around salary, around other relationship issues. Um, we're working on a, uh, Jane is sitting here, we're working on a task force. She's on a task force on um, issues surrounding women and women faculty and women staff and how they can be more successful and how we can make sure uh, we're meeting their expectations and needs. Um, but uh, I, I would also say that not every faculty member shares the views of, that you've, you've been given. Okay, my name's Mallory. Um, I'm just curious as to what's going on with Garfield School of Arts. 
Um, so an elaborate sort of plan was uh, developed around Garfield. Um, it was originally in the master plan. When did we buy the building, Annalisa? 2009. So before I got here, there was not a whole lot of discussion on it. Was there, was there a plan already? No, just for the arts. Um, and uh, so a, a group started under David Dynack and others, he's a theater professor, to look at um, solving a number of issues, one of which is we need uh, more art space. The studio spaces in Converse are not adequate. Um, we needed more music practice rooms, and we've now built many of those. Um, but we still could use some more because uh, we want to make sure that instruction is occurring on the campus and not in instructors' homes elsewhere and things like that. Um, so there was a, a, a plan that really also began to engage uh, the community in the arts and uh, space for programs that we don't even have yet um, and programs that are... Uh, uh, that, that, that we've not been convinced, I've not been convinced, and the Board of Trustees has not been convinced, are going to generate the kind of enrollment that is going to actually pay the bills for that building, uh, which is now up to like a $25 million building, and, um, and, um, and that's even after cutting back significantly on the plans that were developed by this team of folks. Um, it's also not contiguous right now at the campus. So that was all taken to the board of trustees, which have to approve any, any sort of uh, capital campaign or any kind of building on the campus. And there were no, there were no donors coming forward. Um, building like that has to be built entirely from money we raise from donors. Um, and, um, and we, we, we tried very hard. We, we engaged donors who were very engaged in music, uh, very engaged in community activities like the things we're doing at South Salt Lake, and there was just silence. Um, we had a major uh, fundraising donor, uh, fundraising consultant came in who's run multi-billion dollar campaigns for Georgetown and elsewhere and said, it, it, this is not, that kind of purpose building is not one you're going to be successful at raising funding for. Um, so the board at the last meeting, the Board of Trustees in January said, come back with some alternatives for achieving the space needs that you need for these programs um, in smaller projects at, uh, that are achievable that might actually attract some of the donors who we know are out there. And uh, so right now, that's where we are. We're working on uh, uh, proposals to take back to the board in uh, March, at the March 20th, 21st meeting, that would um, uh, give us expanded space in, um, in the music and uh, performing arts area, expanded space in uh, the fine arts, and do it, do it in a way that keeps it on this campus. Andrew Hagedorn. All right. <clears throat> I'm just wondering about how the uh, institution rationalized cutting a director of a program which is based on experiential learning, innovative practices, and many other like items found from the strategic plan. I'm mostly curious about the scholars program and the values of this institution. 
the values of the institution are student learning and student success. And how we achieve that is variable. Um, and uh, there are a number of programs that uh, I think ought to have more faculty investment in them. And we have faculty who actually teach those courses in that program, who continue to teach courses in that program. And what we've uh, had to uh, move on is a position that fundamentally organize that program and provide some advising. And we think those can be picked up elsewhere. And primarily by faculty. And that proposal's in the hands of the Senate right now and they're gonna get back to me on their answer within a couple of weeks. So we have plenty of time between now and the fall to make sure that the students in the program have the same uh, level of access to advising, access to courses, and as I said before then, also have a discussion about whether that program is, as a program itself, um, viable in the long run. My name is Jane German. Um, I'd first just really like to thank you for coming out and taking a listen to us and having this discussion. Um, I have one short question and then one that um, may require a little bit of um, answer from you, but our, my first question is for the students that may not get to answer their questions tonight, what's a good way to get in touch with you or someone who can get in touch with you? What would be the best way for us to do that? Um, email president at westminstercollege.edu. Okay. Uh, those go into our office, and if there are student questions, I usually get them within a day or so. Um, and then I would just like to ask um, if there are any initiatives in the works right now that are working to bring on diversity scholarships to the college. Yes. Um, we have um, a number of diversity scholarships. Um, we've just gotten one that will probably result in um, a program uh, funded for South Salt Lake, sort of a, a uh, uh, what do we call it, a pathway pathway to Westminster and are continuing to work with uh, some donors who are uh, very concerned with uh, helping low-income students, first-generation students. Um, that's my primary concern about affordability is that uh, people who, well, people like myself when I was growing up in the 50s, I mean, it's, it was white privilege and everything, so you didn't, everybody went to college. Uh, that's not the case anymore. And, and we can't restrict, you know, the kind of education we, we experience at a Westminster, uh, the, the professional along with the liberal arts education is what really produces leaders in our society. You look at all the top CEOs, all the political leaders that most uh, heavily come from liberal arts colleges and backgrounds and are doing things completely unrelated to whatever they majored in, uh, in all likelihood. Um, and to deny that access to that very education, which is that mobility step to uh, first generation and low income students is just, just blatantly unfair. But nobody's helping us but ourselves, and so we've got to go out and raise the money to do that. Um, you know, I think all of us can do some things there, and that's reaching out to these communities. A lot of it is overcoming the sense that uh, families can't afford, right off the bat, they say, well, you can't even look at Westminster because you can't afford it. Uh, when in fact, uh, if you look at loan indebtedness of students, 
I think our average loan indebtedness of students is $2,000 more than the students that go to the University of Utah, um, of those who take loans. Uh, and there are a number of scholarships that pay a significant portion of, of uh, student need. So bridging that need gap is a real, is a real challenge for us. Um, if we had a $200 million endowment, it'd be easier to do. Um, so part of, part of the next campaign will be to add to the endowment as well. Um, but we've got to have more programs that do actual outreach. I've been, I've been um, and I said this at my breakfast speech to the campus in the fall, uh, we've got a very sort of intellectualized notion of diversity at this campus. And that is we focus on a lot of theory. Uh, we focus on critical race theory. We focus on white privilege. Um, we have speeches who come in who, I, don't, I can't even understand the title of the speech because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole set of words that have been sort of uh, that take on meaning within certain theories. And what we have now focused on is outreach. Outreach to the very communities that are going to give us students for the next 40, 50 years because that's where the demographics are going. Uh, so that's where I try to spend my time, working with uh, community organizations that are serving first-generation students, that are serving immigrant students, um, and low-income students. And we've got to we've got to do a better job of that. And then helping the students once they're here. And I've got a letter from some students uh, last week. They're going to come and see me, uh, I think, next week, um, about some of the obstacles, institutional obstacles they've encountered. We haven't really. Uh, sort of, we, okay, we, it's nice to look at the theory, but then what are we doing institutionally that is perpetuating that, and how can we change that? So I'm Elle. I work in financial aid, and so um, all you're talking about is scholarships up here. And I've seen a huge change in the way that scholarships are awarded, um, specifically the continuing student scholarship, which affects pretty much everyone here. Um, in the past, it's been that the more involved that you get, you get a different scholarship, because, I mean, example for me, I wasn't very involved my freshman year, and I got, I think, like $500. And then I got more involved and more involved, and this year I have $5,000, and it's really the only reason I've stayed here. And the way that it's getting changed to is that the scholarship that you're awarded your freshman year, you'll just keep, because we want to streamline everything and make everything really great. But I don't really think that's the way that Westminster is. I think like we should be looking at, I mean, to, continue, to help people continue here, you have to look at their whole, like, package, not just what their EFC is or, you know, what they did last year. And I don't know, I think that's something that you need to be addressing, and I don't really see that happening. And this is Eric. Yeah, I've kind of got a follow-up to that. Um, I'm Eric. I graduated a couple years ago, um, and the reason I came to Westminster was I got the Exemplary Achievement Award, um, and that was, that just sold me immediately. Um, and I recently heard that that was, that's being discontinued, um, and I, I just want to know why that is. I mean, it just seems like you're, you know, shying people away from applying. What we're trying to do is serve more students rather than fewer. Um, and when you, exemplary achievement was everything paid, I believe, was all tuition. Um, and if you can divide that up among more students, you can serve more students. Um, John, John Borowski is our new VP for uh, uh, enrollment management. Um, We've been working at trying to figure out how to move more, uh, you know, it's probably not the direction you think we should go, more money into need-based aid as opposed to merit-based aid. Um, more money to students who actually need the money to go to college um, 
and and uh, certainly some merit-based aid, but uh, but uh, really focusing on on student need. And yeah, there's there's people that. Right, right. If you're doing excellent and if you're getting super involved, yeah. I feel like that should be given to you in something more than just a pat on the back. Like, and that's how we've done it in the past. Mm-hmm. And so how are you going to do that in the future? And I agree, like, I am a need-based person. Like, I am all about need-based aid, but yeah. there should be a double size. Well, there's only so much money to go around. Um, and how we, how we divvy it up... Um, you know, one thing I don't like to see is is this notion that we reward people because they have a high ACT score, or happen to go to a a privileged school district as a high school student and do better than a student from a low income district. And um, you know, I, my beef with the public system is that the public system uh, equally subsidizes everybody, whether you need the money or not. And I think the public system leaves. Uh, there's been a, there was a huge shift in the 80s and 90s of the wealthiest families sending their kids to flagship public institutions because it was cheaper. And they were being subsidized by all the taxpayers. The challenge, so we've talked about uh, <clears throat> performance-based kinds of scholarships that are progressive rather than constant. Um, we're not at a stage of implementing that yet. And that would be if, if you can demonstrate that you're excelling academically, I don't know if there should be other standards for that too or not. Um, in terms of involvement, some there are some involvements that that actually are stipended. So, um, so for example, we have uh, we're going to have some more stipends available through the Center for Civic Engagement because we got a a large grant, uh, an endowment from a uh, wealthy citizen here who wanted to give money for building community, um, and so there are opportunities outside of the financial aid office to gain uh, uh, ASWC offices, uh, resident advisors, uh, work with the civic engagement, do the internships that uh, Annalisa has been engaged in that pay. Part of it is the competitive environment we're in, and that is you've got families coming in who are saying, well, uh, Redlands is offering me this, and Colorado College is offering me this, so what do you, well, you know that, you're in the financial aid. Okay. Um, so I've heard a lot of rumors that they're talking about sunsetting or consolidating some of the smaller programs on campus, um, programs like history, philosophy, justice studies. Um, so I wanted to know how that's justified with the idea that this is a liberal arts college and also about how that's justified with the fact that I've heard that spending for sports has not been talked about being cut at all. So how that is justified with the um, liberal arts vision of the college, and also um, what has been talked about in that area and what has not, because I know that what I heard is rumors, so I would just like to hear what has actually been said. Yeah. I'm not having discussions with anybody as the president. I don't think the provost has had any discussions with anybody about cutting or consolidating programs. Um, I think there's been some discussion within a couple of the programs about uh, the wisdom. Where you have a one-faculty program, it doesn't often make sense to keep that as a separate program as opposed to a track within a major. Um, so I'm not aware of any of what you're talking about. Um, we've had no, no discussions around those lines. 
There's no plan to cut any of those programs. Um, and no, the, there hasn't been a reduction in athletic spending. Uh, the move to NCAA uh, is continuing, and uh, it's continuing largely on the basis of a million dollars we got from a donor who said spend it on athletics. Not spend it on history or anything else, but spend it on athletics. And that's allowed us to uh, bridge the gap between the costs of NAIA and the NCAA for a couple of years. Um, the goal in the end is that athletics will generate the same net tuition dollars in the NCAA or more than it did in the NAIA. And we will have greater visibility in, in higher populated markets uh, where we can more effectively recruit students and uh, engage our alumni because we don't have a whole lot of either in Montana. Beautiful state, but not highly populated. Okay, my name's Erin Cavender, and I've heard a lot of discussion about price of tuition tonight. What can we be expecting about the sticker price of tuition in the next four years? Four years, I can't predict. Um, I know the board's looking at a 2.9% uh, increase next year. Uh, which is, I don't know what it comes to in dollars. I don't have it at the top of my head. Um, that's probably lower than any of our sister institutions or fellow institutions in the New American Colleges group. Um, and I think percentage-wise, less than, less than the publics have gone to this year in Utah, although the base, of course, is much, is much lower. At the same time, that also then drives up um, the institutional aid that we need to give out to students to support them. Uh, so it's a real balancing act. Uh, I, you know, we've talked, about, we've talked about a couple of things that colleges have done. One is a price reset. And so you say, you look at all your students and you say, here's our sticker price up here. And, but this is what we're actually on average getting per student. Um, there's some categories of students, uh, oftentimes international students and others, where you really, you know, you can, you can attract students who could pay the, the full sticker price. And that helps subsidize students that can't afford that. That's how the whole system works in private higher education. Um, so we've looked at, can you reset your, your tuition to a certain level? And the schools that have done that within two or three years have crept right back up again for some reason. It just doesn't seem, that model doesn't seem to work. Uh, the other thing we've looked at is um, a kind of a, a set tuition level for four years. So it's predictable. Um, again, though, the problem is with the inflation in our costs. So, you know, we're looking at 12% increase in um, health, health benefit costs for employees next year. Um, uh, employees, uh, certainly, uh, that some of you know, have made a lot of noise about not getting a raise last year, the first time through the entire recession that they didn't get a raise. Um, and so are trying to meet all those expectations. And if, if you go to a single price for four years, uh, what you have to do is you have to elevate that each year so much so it would seem like a huge increase from one year to the next. And then we run afoul of the federal government, which publishes a bad college list uh, because you raised your tuition a certain amount. So you could keep it the same, but you'd have to sort of estimate where's the midpoint of what it would be over a four-year period. And, 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 you know, we realize, too, I know that we, you can't just keep raising the price. I mean, it's just it's not an endless process. Um, 
So the other, the other thing we're trying to do is serve non-traditional students and degree completers more effectively, these corporate uh, uh, cohorts of students, so that we can generate funding in other ways that's less expensive for us to deliver in order to subsidize, cross-subsidize uh, the in-person education that you get in the classroom here. Uh, so I'm Kyle Ray, and um, last semester in my business management class, we went over organizational change and how to minimize resistance to organizational change. And one of the key components to that was um, clear communication about like the purpose and why you're doing it in a timely manner. Um, and so this semester, come right back to a major organizational change. My program or my advisor got cut, and for a few weeks, um, there was no clear communication. And I, who got what got cut? Scholars. For a few weeks, all I was um, given was gossip because there was no clear communication from administration. So I was just curious um, why you chose to not communicate to the students for about a month about the future of their program. Um, because we were first communicating within the faculty and staff, um, and uh, we did not even... Um, identify the positions. You may have had it identified to you by the individual, but we did not, in deference to the individuals uh, involved, and there were nine total. One was going from half-time to full-time. The other eight were positions eliminated in the July 1 budget coming up. Um, we met with those individuals and said, we want to give you some time to be able to roll out this to your colleagues uh, or others in the way you want to do that, um, as opposed to setting up a list of people, uh, which, uh, which in, in personnel decisions is not a smart thing to do. Um, so you may have known of an individual sooner than everybody else on campus did, um, but the timing was, was such that um, we didn't make those uh, known until, I'm trying to think when we had the faculty and staff meetings probably around February 8th or 10th or so. And I can't remember when I wrote to the scholars. It was shortly after that, within the next few days after that. So if, if an individual told you that their position was cut, I mean, that, that was not part of an overall communication strategy. Yeah, well, the positions are eliminated from the next the next budget. They're non-continuing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I want to make a, a quick uh, clarification before we end the night here, and that's um, that um, I want to thank Dr. Bryan for being out here tonight and answering all of our questions. Uh, this was entirely um, his volunteered time uh, to do this for all of us, and I would also like to thank all of you for coming out here and bringing your concerns and questions and things like that to the table. I hope everyone in here knows how important they are to this institution and how important they are to, you know, the, the future of students because that's what we are. And so ASWC appreciates that you're here. I personally appreciate that you're here. And I just want to say thank you and good night. Yeah, well, what we'll probably do, what we'll probably do is we're going to...